0: I'm Podcast. Your man, Welcome everybody to this episode of Scientist the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Sir Ranjit Singh, and I am here with Dr. Andrew Hill, who is a cognitive neuroscientist from UCLA, and he does research on attention and cognitive performance. Is that fair? Yeah,
1: that's 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 uh, pretty close to what I do. I have a mixture of uh... Responsibilities mostly UCLA. I'm teaching, doing uh, courses in uh, neuroscience, gerontology, and psychology.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so I, I do have sort of a, a peak performance and human performance focus, you know, even in the cl- in the classroom, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then uh, from there, I'm I'm both uh, doing research uh, in a private lab uh, on the sort of effects of true brain uh, and, and other nootropic compounds, like you know, uh, and, and near nootropics like caffeine. Uh, as well as doing sort of uh, hands-on human performance uh, work with biofeedback and meditation.
0: So you mentioned TrueBrain. So you are the lead neuroscientist at TrueBrain, which is a startup,
1: I guess? It is indeed, yeah. I mean, at this point, we've been in business for about a little over two and a half years. So I'm not sure at what point we have to stop calling ourselves a startup, (laughs) but...
0: Yeah, I'm not sure what the uh, cutoff for that is. Yeah, well, yeah I,
1: I, I've only, you know, I've, I've had a few startups, but uh, uh, you know, they're all a few years old. So uh, I'm, at some point, they have to, they have to graduate to being you know, full fledged. Mm. But a true brand at this point has a pretty large team of people. We have entire you know business units doing sort of supply chain and safety testing, and uh, you know, I have a few people working with me doing research. Um, so it's a pretty active uh, company. We're not, you know. We're, we're we're less lean than we were uh, two and a half years ago when we were first uh, incubated at an accelerator. Okay.
0: So, so we'll talk about TrueBrain in a second. First, I wanted to jump into a little bit of the nitty gritty of the science uh, sure. behind some of the some of the uh, the products that you have at TrueBrain. So, you mentioned something called biofeedback. Could you mm-hmm. go into what that is and how you use that?
1: Sure. So, biofeedback, uh, broadly speaking, is taking any process that is normally not perceptible or uh, doesn't have an information component uh, and and, uh, uh, amplifying it to the extent where you can shape it or learn from it or control it. Um, Most of the biofeedback I do is what's called neurofeedback or biofeedback on the central nervous system. And usually that means EEG or brainwave training. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes we also use uh, blood flow. We also train the sort of perfusion dynamics uh, of blood vessels. That's often done for things like migraine. But in in general, when you're training uh, parameters of activity in the brain, you're measuring something moment to moment. And the brain's doing, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of things at any one moment in time. And some of those things you're trying to encourage and some of those things you're trying to discourage. And in biofeedback on uh, brainwaves, you do that by giving the brain some interesting stimulus, some audio or visual or tactile stimulus, Whenever it's doing something you want it to do, sort of more of, and by changing sort of where you reward uh, brain activity, you shape that activity up or down, or you change connectivity, or uh, change the the ratio of different frequencies and brain waves to each other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, beyond the basic definition of shaping or operant conditioning of brain activity, uh, the specifics of what neurofeedback is gets fairly complicated fairly fast. Um, but essentially we are training brain activity and, and uh, uh, on the far side of that you get changes in, in regulatory uh, states. So you're more focused, better slept, you're, you know, reduction in seizures. Uh, neurofeedback is used a lot for a, you know, broad range of things, uh, both to fix problems as well as to sort of, you know, exercise the brain and more of a peak performance or health and wellness focus. Um, but a lot of the things used for the sort of clinical approach would be uh, things that fall into the ADHD category or stress stuff, sleep, uh, anxiety, sort of broad regulatory features of the brain. It's not, you know, a replacement for psychotherapy, uh, for psychological stuff, but I would argue, you know, you're never going to talk your way out of ADHD or, you know, epilepsy or uh, having a, you know, significant uh, touch of uh, Aspergers or something, and these all do shift under um, the training process because you're changing actively changing the brain. Uh, so, so that's that, that's my one-on-one sort of mm-hmm. uh, approach to doing work.
0: So what what is the uh, reward aspect of the training?
1: Yeah, so um, you can use a lot of things, and to some extent, it doesn't really matter what you train. Uh, with, with what stimulus. So um, right now I do a lot of uh, video game style things. So people sit there and watch a Pac-Man eat dots and, and hear music. And when the, mm-hmm. when, the, when the brain drifts out of the desired range, uh, the Pac-Man stalls out and music uh, goes quiet. Or they race spaceships. And you know, the spaceship that is the, the desired brainwave um, pulls ahead whenever uh, um, their brain drifts towards the right sort of activity states. Um, or you can do eyes closed training. Uh, there's, a, there's a style of training called Alpha Theta, um, which has deep uh, uh, history in the past 20, 30, 40 years on um, several overlapping features of sort of human experience. Um, it's the core of what's called the Penniston Protocol, after a scientist named Peniston, who used it very successfully with post-alcohol recovery. Um, and Penniston found the alpha-theta protocol uh, reverses the recidivism rate of uh, alcohol relapse. So it's typically about two-thirds, and it seems like uh, with alpha-theta, um, it reverses that and drops into about a third uh, of people that relapse. Uh, I've, I've done a lot of work in um, addiction and, and substance abuse as well, and I uh, one of the, the places I do neurofeedback now uh, is a substance abuse program, and we find alpha-theta works really well to sort of re-educate the brain and how to uh, sort of down regulate. Um, what Alpha is really doing is putting you in a hypnogogic state, holding you sort of in between wakefulness and sleep. And in that liminal state, your monkey mind is pretty much gone, and you are, you know, ideas are bubbling up, insights bubbling up, you know, mm-hmm. things that bother you are bubbling up, creativity uh, access gets triggered. And the same processes also seem to have um, an immune response, they seem to boost the immune system in some way. So, uh, you know, those are sort of two categories, doing the executive function neurofeedback and doing the alpha-theta or the deep relaxation response neurofeedback are, uh, you know, two of the probably ten different styles of neurofeedback out there now. And, uh, um, you know, you're working very discreetly on one specific puzzle, you know, sort of close reading of one person's brain and uh, doing assessments on their brain activity to figure out what patterns are probably causing them trouble. And then, you know, over several weeks or months, shaping those act, that activity to help eliminate problems or improve uh, strengths. So,
0: so that's
1: the, the thumbnail
0: sketch. You mentioned about 20 different things that I could think of, about 10 different questions for each. <laughs> okay. Well, let's start with this. So you, um, you mentioned uh, that the, your, your primary approach is with EEGs. Yeah. This, so that's an electroencephalogram, right? So could you exactly. talk a little yeah. bit about what that is and how you use that in your training? Sure. And, what, sure. and feel free to get as technical as you can.
1: No problem. Yeah. Great. Uh, so EEG is, is an electroencephalogram. Um, it's firing of cells in the brain. And it's, there's a certain type of cell called, called a pyramidal cell, which is uh, pyramid-shaped. And it's at right angles. Uh, many of the cells are at right angles to the, to the scalp and they cluster in these columns of pyramidal cells. And in fact, it, it seems to be, to some extent, that the cortex prey in the top layer um, is where a lot of the computational processing seems to occur for uh, sensory integration, for thinking. Uh, it seems to be a very sort of high level, no pun intended phenomena. Mm. Um, there are clusters of cells uh, at right angles to the, to the scalp um, called microcolumns or cortical columns, and these appear to have something like 30,000 cells in them. And they, and they seem to be the sort of computational smallest unit of the brain, the little CPU. You know, the brain's multi-core. Um, it's got a couple of billion of these things. Uh, and each one of them has got about 30,000 cells. And if you stick a probe on, into the tissue, which we don't do in my clinic, just mm-hmm. FYI, but if you did, you would find that the same electrical environment is consistent roughly within that 30,000 cell cluster. Um, And a bunch of those cells are pyramidal cells sticking at right angles to the scalp, and they fire synchronously and produce um, a waveform that, you know, has a little hump uh, a certain number of times per second based on how many times these little guys fire. And uh, having more cells fire, more columns fire, means the size of the waves gets bigger, more electricity gets discharged. Uh, and all of these individual cells are sort of neurons that are, you know, sending signaling messages to, to various circuits, both local and long term. So in EEG, we stick electrodes to the outside of the head, uh, either using, you know, paste or we squirt gel through a cap uh, and cover your head with uh, sort of dots of uh, measurement. And it's all passive. EEG is not an active technology. We're not zapping, uh, you know, your brain when we're measuring it. We're simply recording the microelectric uh, fluctuations that are making it to the scalp and um eeg in terms of a research or training you know neurofeedback tool is phenomenal in that it has a timing precision that is a millisecond or even better often so you can get a really really amazingly good sense of what's happening moment to moment to moment in the brain right you get instant
0: feedback on the screen as you're. Yeah,
1: the the, so the uh, in, in terms of neurofeedback, you mm-hmm. take the information off the scalp, and, in, and typically in neurofeedback we use one or two wires in the head. We don't do a full head of, of EEG. Uh, we do a full head for assessment and for some forms of neurofeedback. We might train uh, all 19, let's say, you know, discrete spots in the head at once, that we would, uh, you know, have a grid. But usually I'm doing, you know, one-channel, two-channel, four-channel neurofeedback. Um, and there, you're measuring the moment-to-moment fluctuations, extracting information like how much alpha am I making, how much theta am I making, which are frequency ranges. Mm-hmm. And moment-to-moment, those are changing. Uh, and the amount of each brainwave you have moment-to-moment says something about your arousal state, your cognitive state, how your brain's regulating. Um, we do make all brainwaves all the time, which is important to understand, but. For instance, when you're deeply asleep, the majority of what you're making is uh, slow wave delta. That's, that's when you're uh, deeply asleep and not dreaming. The brain makes these big, slow, relaxed, profoundly slow uh, activity. Um, when you're wide awake, it's making uh, things like alpha and beta in more dominant uh, fashion. And those are sort of an idling rhythm as alpha, although that's a bit oversimplified. And, and beta is a processing rhythm to some extent. So if you look at the ratio of the slow brain waves that are less active like delta and theta, and the faster brain waves like alpha and beta, you can start getting a sense of where the brain is in a moment in time. and neurofeedback you know applauds with stimulus the brain whenever it moves in the right direction. In research, we can use the moment-to-moment fluctuations in a really sort of elegant way. There's a, a style of EEG research called ERP, uh, which stands for event-related potentials or remote mm-hmm. potentials EPs. And in event-related potentials, what you do, um, uh, in, in the ongoing EEG, uh, at any moment, uh, you know, a few moments in time, there'll be things that are happening in the EEG that are related to ongoing processes and background activity in the body and the brain. Just, you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of things going on that have nothing to do with interacting with the environment. Um, But then you can give someone a behavioral test and there are things in the EEG that are related to things in the environment. The perceiving a stimulus, deciding to act, making a mistake, not making a mistake. Those are all discrete things the brain will notice whenever you act sort of repetitively. Mm -hmm. So when we have uh, an ongoing EEG, we can take behavioral tasks and mark the EEG record uh, repetitively. Whenever you flash a stimulus on the screen, you mark the record. there's one type of ERP experiment I'll explain to sort of make this concrete. It's called a 300 sure. experiment. And a P300 is a positive waveform that happens about 300 milliseconds after you see something interesting or something important. So it's a proxy for attention to some extent in many cognitive neuroscience uh, sort of realms. So the P300 wave, um, the, ta- the classic way of doing it is to say, okay, I'm going to play, um, let's say, a sound. And I want you to notice or hit a button whenever the sound is different and 75% of the sounds will be you know, beep and 25% will be beep or something so the sound is longer or higher pitch there's a pop out, an oddball, a distractor, a target and so um, you look at the uh, the activity of the brain in the moment of the target versus the moment of the oddball or the, the pop out and you can sort of see some differences but the way that works is um, if you embed an event in the ongoing EEG whenever you see a stimulus and then clip out two seconds, let's say, of the EEG, a second before and after the event, in that two-second chunk or epoch of the EEG, you, you do have those thousands of things that are unrelated to the task and a few things that are related to the task. And if you give the person several trials of the task, or tens or hundreds of trials, you have many of these little two-second segments. Uh, if you average all of these together, all of the task irrelevant information is out of phase and averages to nothing, and all the task relevant information is in phase and becomes very strongly accentuated, and so you end up with a very characteristic sort of measured waveform oh, yeah. that has specific height or amplitude and timing or latency that describes, in millisecond t- uh, precision, how much more quickly your brain is responding, uh, you know, to the right stimulus or what happens to that waveform when you make an error. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, things you can look at in terms of a discrete sort of characteristic waveform and it starts taking EEG into the realm of like EKG uh, heart or or, or ECG electrocardiogram Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sure many of your uh, listeners have you know watched Grey's Anatomy or some medical (laughs) show and seen a a characteristic waveform Mm -hmm. EKG is a very classic waveform because if it differs beat to beat it means the heart is dysregulated and so Spaces between peaks and the height of different aspects of the waveform are critical and a cardiologist can glance up at an ongoing EKG and based on the shape of the waveform tell you if the person's about to go into heart failure, has, you know, some arrhythmia that's going right. to, you know, uh, show up in a moment or they're at great risk for, for various uh, uh, problems. EEG isn't quite as, you know, uh, discreet because we're picking one thing out of, uh, you know, millions of things that are happening so it's not locked to just the heartbeat, it's locked to everything happening in the brain. But you can look at P300 changes and determine if someone is uh, paying uh, as much attention. If I just give you a passive P300 task, your, your P300 is slow, uh, sorry, low. mean, if I don't tell you this to pop out, you still notice it, but it's a smaller wave. If I tell you, make sure you don't miss any of those unusual beats, the P300 gets bigger. So it's a waveform that is sort of amenable to concentration and trying and noticing. And it happens at a time course, 300 milliseconds after a stimulus, mm-hmm. where thought can occur, where attention and shaping top-down control of attention has a real strong uh, effect. And so um, this sort of segues into the discussion of research. Uh, what I'm doing with TrueBrain, uh, we've done several research studies looking at a different form of EEG, baseline EEG, or quantitative EEG, and that's looking at amounts of theta, beta, alpha, those sorts of waves. Mm. That's a very coarse measure. It doesn't affect precision in, in attention or time. Uh, and so we're, now we're doing a, a P300 study. We're, we're looking at um, the ability of the brain to grab correct stimulus against the background of distractors uh, and seeing how much the brain reacts to that task. And doing it on TrueBrain, which is of course our nootropic blend, um, as well as uh, caffeine, sort of as an active placebo. Um, and uh, an inactive placebo, some sort of rice starch uh, is what we're using. So we'll have this sort of P300 study that will look at not only the the P300, the physiology measure, but look at the QEEG, the, the resting theta, beta, alpha, and see if those change. Mm. And uh, correlate that with changes in behavior, sort of, accuracy, reaction time, uh, correct hits, correct rejections of false alarms. Mm -hmm. Um, And those things uh, can be used to calculate, there's some cognitive neuroscience uh, measures, there's one called D-prime or signal signal detection. Uh, And the, 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 the analogy I always like to use when describing signal detection is, okay, you're in the shower and you're hearing the shower, you also might be hearing the phone Mm-hmm. And so the phone, your ability to correctly get out of the shower when the phone is ringing, but not get out of the shower when it's not, is signal, is signal detection. Here, over the hear over the background noise, wait, is that really something real I should be acting on? So for us, for, for the true brain folks, that's really a, a central aspect of performance, selecting right. the, pr- the appropriate stimuli, the signal against the noise. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to be looking at um, uh, a D-prime, uh, you know, continuous performance task, which will produce a P300, so we'll sort of get the whole picture—the of the brain, the behavior—and then uh, we'll also get folks to report their subjective experiences on this stuff too. So, 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 uh,
0: using, so using the P300 and the you know the the event-related potential uh, method, you can so the magnitude of the wave actually indicates the level of concentration or attention.
1: Yeah, well, it, it indicates how many cells are responding. So, okay. you know, if I tell if, for you, within subject, subject, if, if your ERP gets bigger, when I tell you to really focus, I mean, it, I mean it, it does. The P300 gets larger when you tell someone to focus, especially the second half of it. Uh, the P300, to get more technical, appears to be two different waves overlapping. And there's a P300A and a P300B, an early and a late version that seem to get merged. And the late half of it is really amenable to focus and concentration and trying. And the earlier half is a little bit more bottom-up, and it's a bit more about your poor resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by looking at changes in the early part of the waveform versus the late part, and the height of the waveform and how quickly it, it shows up, you can say, well, do cells fire faster on caffeine, let's say, than placebo? And they probably do. Um, but do they, are they more accurate? You know, is that presenting more accurate behavior? Right. My guess is no, although we haven't finished the, the research yet. Um, but yeah, looking at you know, a, a more area under the curve, a bigger P300 means more cells are firing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like an increase of the EEG amplitude. It means more physical cells, more of those, of those micro columns came online in that moment in response to the task. Uh,
0: so you mentioned uh, that you have also done work with uh, alcoholism? And mm-hmm. treatment with alcoholism with using sure. EEGs in in training to reduce alcohol recidivism. So let's say um, I come to you for mm-hmm. treatment for alcoholism. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know what what would that what would that training look like? You would have me hooked up to an EEG, and or yeah, or and so would I also would, even for the alcoholism uh, treatment? Would it be similar to the research in that you know the person is doing a task on a screen? Like, or was not, it more... not exactly.
1: I mean, I I do neurofeedback, the video game style reinforcement or the audio, you know, Penniston Protocol stuff for, for alcohol clients. Um, the alcohol work is done in, in the context of a larger program called Addiction Alternatives. And Addiction Alternatives has this very sort of progressive program where you come in and say, you know, my goals are abstinence or my goals are moderation and we help you get to your goal, whatever that happens to be. And including like, you know, I've been an alcoholic for 20 years, haven't had a drink, but I'd like to start drinking again. Alternatives will take you through a program that at the end of it, you have skills in moderate drinking. Wow, okay. Uh, it's the <laughs> idea. It's a fairly, you know, there's only about two or three of these it's, in the world. So very um, alternative. It's very alternative, It <laughs> uh, has a moderation, and, it ha- and it's very not AA, uh, it's very empowering about giving you more control, more agency, trying to help mm-hmm. you figure out what your triggers are, what your cues are. Um, but because of that it's got sort of a life coaching component to it, there's a mindfulness and meditation training component to it, there's a CBT therapy component to it, there's you know all kinds of things and that takes a team of five or six people. Alternatives has uh, when when a client engages their first week I think has 45 hours of one-on-one time Uh, and then from then on it's 10 or 15 hours a week and it steps down after a few weeks. Hmm. Everyone who's engaging that program takes their first month off regardless if they're trying to abstain or moderate. Uh, and the neurofeedback is one of the things that really helps to reset tolerance and help quickly sort of put the brain back so that, you know, as people withdraw from alcohol, there are often, especially long-term chronic alcohol, there are really dramatic things going on in the brain um, that don't go away when you stop drinking because it's sort of a learned uh, a pattern or almost damage. Um, and a lot of that is overactivity in the fast frequencies and overconnectivity throughout the brain in those fast frequencies. So you have a brain that has no brakes on. I mean, you've probably met these people. They're very nervous and shaky, and there's so much going on that um, they can't even form a sort of coherent, complete thought. And they, there's no ability to downregulate. Uh, and these folks don't go to sleep at night. You know, one of the reasons they often are drinking so poorly, if you will, their their, their relationship with alcohol is so compromised is because their sleep got destroyed by alcohol early on, and for the past 10 or 20 years, they've been doing a bottle of wine and, and three Ambien to get to sleep every night. Mm. And that doesn't work all that well long term. Um, so these folks we see, and things like the Alpha Theta training uh, and the month of abstinence, just re-educate the brain, and you know most of these folks are sleeping deeply at will, without alcohol, without drugs, in a couple of weeks with the neurofeedback. Um, but it's not the only thing they're doing. Alcohol is, you know, drug addiction is a pretty hard problem and substance abuse, uh, when it's a moderation approach is a much more complicated, you know, uh, uh, structured way, uh, to go about it. And so we end up having a lot of other things we bring in. There's, um, there's two different groups that we have, uh, and they're actually national organizations now, uh, over the past 20 or 30 years. One's called SMART Recovery, SMART's an acronym, and it's essentially, uh, a non-aa abstinence oriented help self-help support group but there's no 12 steps and there's no, you know, higher power and there's no powerlessness mm-hmm. which I think is a better way to go personally um, and the other organizations called mm moderation management which is about learning to get control <laughs> of out yeah. of control relationships with substances mm-hmm. um, so uh, you know I'm 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 working in that world as a neurofeedback person primarily mm-hmm. Teaching at UCLA, doing research for TrueBrain, and also I've just uh, got a brand new uh, brain fitness training center up and running in Los Angeles as well that has a sort of broad brain training uh, focus. So I'm not busy at all. Um, <laughs> yeah, but all the things I'm doing overlap and have a lot of sort of synergy and are all about you know mm-hmm. helping people get to. Higher levels of performance, or figuring out what is a higher level of performance,
0: and, and and the crucial part of this is the neurofeedback that you're talking about. And maybe I'm I'm missing something. I'm still trying to hmm? still trying to understand how. Uh, and of course, you know, I'm not asking you to give away trade secrets. Sure. But uh, so in in the alcoholism example, yeah. So you would be you would use their brainwave data and see if it's trending in the right direction. And then maybe yeah. You know, I, I, I didn't explain QEEG
1: to you, which is how the yeah. process starts. Uh, QEEG, someone comes in. I say, hey, Sam, how's it going? How are you feeling? You know, oh, you want you got some problems of sleep? Okay, let's let's see what's going on. So you sit down, put a full head cap on with at least 19 electrodes, gel them all up, and then have you sit still for about five minutes with your eyes closed and open. And that what that does is it gives me baseline activity got it. Um, of a whole bunch of different features, including amplitude and connectivity of different frequencies and regions of the brain. And I take that raw data and compare it to a database that has thousands of brains in it. Out of that, I get patterns that tell me how until theta is impulsivity, so that's an ADHD brain. Or the alcoholic, the long-term chronic alcoholic, has like three standard deviations more beta and three standard deviations more coherence or connectivity in beta than average. And their brain can't shift ears, for instance. Um, and so moment to moment, I measure that amount of beta, that amount of connectivity, and whenever it goes down, they get a reward. They get an audio or visual reward. Uh, in the case of alcohol specifically, we train up theta and alpha. That's what alpha theta training is. When you're in that liminal state between awake and asleep, your, um, first your alpha goes up as you relax and then your theta goes up and surges past your alpha. And it's almost this dissociative, incredibly wide, creative memory access state. Mm Uh, and, and, um, when the progression from sleep, from from awake to asleep, we're in that state for a few minutes. But in the neurofeedback chair, you're kept in that state for 10, 20, 30 minutes, and that's an awful lot of time to be in this in-between state. And during that time, there's this sort of profound relaxation response that occurs. And after doing that several times, as well as doing other forms of neurofeedback, the alcoholic brain that had dramatic excess fast activity and poor abilities to produce slow activity can now produce slow activity all by itself and is no longer locked in a fast state. And so, functionally, the experience of the person is lying down and going to sleep at will instead of lying down and having their mind sort of start cycling and getting buzzy and and anxiety-filled. But the ERP and and the EEG training and the QEEG are all sort of adjacent domains in EEG. Um, so we don't necessarily do the ERP uh, tests in the clinic. Like that's not my assessment tool. The assessment is the, uh, you know, the sort of 10,000 foot view of your baseline brain activity. It's not the moment-to-moment performance. It's the clinical picture about, hey, what's going on with your brain right. relative to the background? Uh, that's you... less interesting for research because it's a clinical question. It's about how you know. It's, it's a z score, a standard deviation about how your particular brain and a whole bunch of parameters uh, differ from typical. So, uh, I do QEEG analysis whenever I do research because it's, you know, you might as well gather baseline EEG when you have.
0: Hello? I think uh, we froze a little bit on the Skype. Yep, and we're yep. back. <laughs> so I think uh, yeah, Skype froze a little bit. Something lost connection. It
1: did.
0: Yeah, that's right. Pick right back up.
1: So yeah, so um, the I guess I was just saying that ERP uh, or evoked real-time uh, effects of brain activity, uh, QEG, or baseline uh, clinical perspective, how you're different than the average person. Um, and training of the EEG moment to moment, the the FFT, the the, the band EEG, they're all related, you know, phenomena, and they have uh, implications on each other. But they're not necessarily things you do for everyone. Like ERP is more of a research tool. Right. Uh, QEG is more of a clinical tool, and uh, neurofeedback is more of a you know clinical tool, obviously as well, or peak performance tool. So have,
0: have you considered uh, just to have a side by side comparison of? doing a QEEG with uh, a few people that are in uh, your uh, program, alternative program, versus people, and also do QEEGs on people who do the traditional Alcoholics Anonymous? Would that be valuable uh, data at all? You know,
1: uh, it'd be an interesting study. It'd be fairly trivial to find huge changes because the brain doesn't change very quickly. A a QEEG, a baseline map, a brain map, uh, we call them, uh, of your brain activity, if I did one today and did one in five years, it would look almost identical unless a few things happened. And they're fairly significant things. You, know, you developed a significant mindfulness practice or changed it in a dramatic way, um, had medication changes, uh, did neurofeedback, um, or had a head injury. Um, and there's there's some maturational changes going from kid to adult, or from like a you know 60 to an 80 year old. But between about 25 and 60 years old or so, the EEG is just you know very very stable at a an average level, and that's what QEEG is. So somebody who has uh, you know who's doing an abstinence sort of grit, grit your teeth and power through with the 12 steps in the AA program is going to have some brain changes as the alcohol leaves their system, but they're not going to have uh, any real good dramatic improvements of brain activity after they are fully detoxed. I mean, they're going to have this sort of high beta, high connectivity pattern. And it might change a little bit over a month or two, but it's not going to change dramatically at all. It will change very, very minimally if you're just simply doing a a 12-step program without any uh, support. that's an assertion, uh, it'd be, you know, what, what you're asking for is data around that. It'd be great to find, um, but there just aren't going to be, uh, you know, QEG is such a stable measure over time, there won't be that dramatic changes unless uh, people do other interventions. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I definitely do pre and post QEGs for all of my clients, both alcohol clients, NP performance, or ADHD, or autism, or, you know, seizure, or migraine, whatever they are. Mm-hmm. and. I almost always, you know, more than nine times out of ten, see the dramatic pattern, the the three or four standard deviation thing, go down to one or two standard deviations, which is sort of a more healthy range, um, with symptom shifting. So it's such a reliable and reproducible effect in the physiology and in the experience of the person um, with neurofeedback on board. And uh, the brain tends not to change at all without some dramatic interventions. Uh, It's, you know, it's it's a very... um, it sounds like I should probably get a, uh, an undergraduate intern to start doing a project like that because it's sort of <laughs> low-hanging fruit, I think, for the uh, mm-hmm. for research findings. Okay.
0: Well, I was just curious that so maybe it had been done by someone and maybe there was some data out there on it. But uh, I mean,
1: there's there, there's certainly data. The, the uh, Peniston and related researchers, I think Quirk uh, did some work that was similar with prisoners uh, on Alpha Theta, but a lot of the initial Peniston research um, did look at. Peniston or, or alpha-theta training versus no alpha-theta training, you know, weightless controls. Right. Um, it's a little tricky to do placebo-controlled neurofeedback, uh, you know, double-blind neurofeedback. Um, one of the things I did in my grad degree program was help the uh, software developer uh, prove out that we could get double-blind placebo-controlled training uh, up and running in a way that was really quite you know, elegant, we thought. And it works. So now since then, since I got my Ph.D., there have been four or five studies using this te- technique of doing double-blind uh, neurofeedback. But the Penniston protocol stuff is very old. It's 20, 30 years old, some of it. And a lot of people have been hugely successful doing it. Um, and there have been some studies showing uh, uh, brain changes on alpha-theta training versus no brain changes or very su- subtle brain changes without the neurofeedback. So yeah, there there are some papers out there like that. Um, I don't think there are papers out there specifically looking at twelve step versus alpha oh. theta, okay. you know, or twelve step versus alternative sort of smart recovery plus uh, alpha theta. But I've done a couple hundred clients now at this point at alternatives and I think, you know, probably thirty or forty of them are uh, alcohol substances, you know, clients are trying to change their relationship with that with the alcohol, mm-hmm. and of those, half were moderation and half were abstinence-oriented uh, clients. So I have a lot of data, mm-hmm. um, and my partner in alternatives, uh, Adi Jaffe, um, is very research-focused. So uh, we we probably have a lot we can work with to start answering some of those questions, like your like your you're, uh, you're mm-hmm. wondering. But to my knowledge, it has there has not been a apples and apples sort of comparison of smart recovery mm-hmm. plus neurofeedback, if you will, with uh, AA and, you know, no neurofeedback, just uh, the sort of uh, sponsoring relationship, if you will, as the primary intervention. Okay.
0: So you are a cognitive neuroscientist, but, you know, after this conversation and reading about you a little bit, there definitely seems to be a focus on brain fitness, right? And, yeah, you know, well, and you mentioned I, your, your I, I, brain fitness. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Brain
1: fitness, but also figuring out where the brain, how the brain uh, is performing and how it's flexible. Um, when I was uh, growing up, I got a you know an early education on on how fragile brains are. Uh, my my younger brother was in a in a accident. He he was actually in a, in a sled. We lived in the northeast, and he sledded out into the street and hit by a car, oh, and man. was in a, a coma for several weeks and uh, lost a chunk of his brain and had you know obviously profoundly altered consciousness states and. Uh, took some time to come back from that over uh, a few months, and he did uh, over a few years totally. But um, the profound and utter change in consciousness and function was, you know, really impactful uh, on me, you know, seeing this happen. Uh, and I was in seventh or eighth grade or something, and uh, that was an early lesson in, okay, so brains change. And, you know, he went from that, from, from coming out of that state, uh, I think he was maybe eight years old, uh, he came out of that state with some serious functional deficits that over the next couple of years, he was able to, through physical therapy and occupational therapy and other learning, was able mm-hmm. to f- pretty much surmount and you know, continue to uh, uh, improve long term. So the fact the brain was this flexible and this dramatically changeable um, and could produce changes in consciousness that were so dramatic uh, really caught my attention, and I ended up, over the next decade or so, doing a lot of work in Health and Human Services, working with people with uh, developmental disabilities and brain injuries, and um, other sorts of uh, mental uh, retardation and mental health problems. And, you know, started off working with fairly profoundly disabled populations, multiply impaired with MR and, you know, deaf and blind. And uh, was doing a lot of my communication through, you know, rudimentary tactile sign. And then after several years of uh, working with progressively more sort of functional populations. I was working with uh, inpatient uh, adolescents, sort of at the end of that arc. I um, had been through almost every sort of clinical population, inpatient and residential, uh, out there. And, um, you know, found in various uh, types of kids, both, you know, uh, high-functioning ADHD kids, uh, as well as the sort of autistic spectrum and otherwise, you know, developmentally uh, different uh, individuals. Um, I, I really rocked them, really enjoyed working with kids, um, and neurofeedback, uh, when I first got involved with it about 10 or 15, maybe 12, 15 years ago, um, you know, it, it's used with uh, adults and uh, as well as children, and uh, even sometimes, uh, you know, elders and, and, uh, and non-humans. Uh, anything with a brain seems to be trainable. It's not a cognitive mm. uh, process. Um it was actually discovered on cats in the late 60s, the, the neurofeedback process, oddly enough. Oh, well, and okay. cats don't have much in the way of, you know, voluntary attention and, you know, instruction following abilities. So um, they probably weren't trying to do anything specific with their brains, uh, and the training happened as well. But with this focus, um, I went and got an a undergrad degree in psychology and then ended up going into uh, high tech um, uh, after some work in human services. Uh, and I'm sure many of your listeners know that health and human service work can be somewhat brutal, mm-hmm. uh, long hours, low pay, yeah. stressful jobs, and it's a lot of one-on-one care, both in residential as well as in inpatient psych, which I did a lot of. It's really fairly stressful work, and after about a decade of that, um, I ended up, uh, you know, going back into high tech or going into high tech. And after you know half a decade there, uh, the the tech bubble was correcting and I got sort of squeezed out of that and went back into human services, started working in, in more neuroimaging, uh, an MRI, EEG, uh, and uh, started working with an, uh, an outpatient uh, neurofeedback clinic in Providence, Rhode Island, that is an amazing clinic that does a lot of work with autistic spectrum and other uh, neurodevelopmental populations. Mm-hmm. And so um, over the couple of years that I worked there, I saw just amazing change uh, Again, again and again and again Um, You know, ADHD kids that were profoundly dysregulated, having their ADHD completely gone in a couple of months, or you know, seizures getting controlled, or OCD getting shut down, or um, you know, uh, the the sensory integration or perseveration of an Asperger's or an autistic kid getting relieved, or every so often a nonverbal autistic kid, you know, uh, starting to speak a little bit again. So all of this
0: using neurofeedback.
1: All this using neurofeedback. Yeah, I mean. If you view the world or view the brain rather through a regulatory lens um, it almost doesn't matter at least from my perspective if you're working with autism or a sleep onset problem or um, seizures or migraines or ADHD it's all brain training and it works as long as you can get a sense about what's happening uh, and what the person's goals are. Um, It works better for some things. I mean autism takes uh, you know it's there's slower movement it's often more profound deficits, you often need longer training or more ongoing training than you do for other things, but it's one of the few things that can change brains. And this is what I saw, that there was a tool out there that was underutilized that can change brains, that can eliminate the need for psychostimulants in almost anyone that needs them, Mm -hmm. that can relieve or at least improve some quality of life in autistic symptoms for people, that can take the pressure off profound anxiety or PTSD or OCD that can reduce triggering of migraines, um, you know, that reduce triggering of seizures. These were all very profound things, and they were changes that I, I had not seen in the previous decade or two in psychiatric hospitals. I had not seen psych meds doing great work you know, repetitively. I, I was not seeing people getting lots of relief from ADHD, from seizures, from uh, depression, from trauma, you know, through therapy and through medication. And a couple of years working with, you know, more profoundly impaired people, they were making much better change than the average psychiatric, you know, person makes. So, um, I was fairly, uh, you know, blown away by this. And at the time, it was still fairly, you know, this was, ter- this was like about 10, 12 years ago. Neurofeedback wasn't new by any means, but the research sort of uh, underpinning wasn't quite uh, as robust as it is today. Um, there were probably about the same amount of clinicians, somewhere between five and ten thousand clinicians in the world, doing this stuff. So it, it was it was around, but it wasn't mm-hmm. very prevalent. Uh, so I was so the in this
0: uh, stuff. Sorry to interrupt you, real quick. Yeah. So the difference uh, between the, the neurofeedback approach and just the you know uh, giving drugs or you know any yeah. any uh, prescription medications uh, to let's say any psychiatric disorder. What so. With the prescription medications, what's happening is that there's, you know, there's an active target of the drug and it's going and it's usually blocking or opening up a pathway. Whereas with this neurofeedback, the, the, the pyramidal cells that we talked about or other cells in the brain are physically changing shape and making different synaptic connections. Is that what's happening?
1: Well... You're, you're definitely changing their firing rates and you're shaping their activity up and down temporarily. Mm. Um, there's some research showing that after neurofeedback, uh, the brain's more plastic. It has more changeability. So it's, it's off regulating plasticity and the actual ability of the brain to change. Mm. Uh, so it's a learning uh, event. Um, you're, you're teaching the brain something so it can keep doing it and change its, its, its tuning, its regulatory tuning. A lot of this you can think about you know, the brain like a symphony. Um, if all the instruments are tuned up properly and playing in time with each other, it works a whole lot better than if, you know, one tube is flat and three cellists are, you know, racing ahead. Um, Mm -hmm. It's it's the difference between music and not, you know, essentially. And and the brain is, you know, uh, uh, billions of cells um, and they have to all act in concert. And so neurofeedback challenges the brain, encourages it to do more or less of something, and that causes a learning event. And over time, the brain is able to do more or less of that thing on its own, and uh, there's sort of an exercise in getting stronger, so you have more resources uh, metaphor that works here. Um, Also, it's it's, it's the ability to change. The brain doesn't tend to have a lot of information about itself, and so just the act of holding a mirror up in, in the data... And giving the brain uh, information about what it's doing moment to moment seems to also break up stuck brain patterns and allow it to change more quickly. So it, it, it does have sort of an exercise modal uh, uh, a metaphor, mm-hmm. except that it sort of breaks down neurofeedback. Uh, the 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 exercise metaphor breaks down because for many things, once you've done twenty or thirty sessions um, and you've got symptom relief, you don't have to keep training. That same way to to have the symptoms stay gone. You know, ADHD. Uh, the the efficacy rates seem to be eighty percent, ninety percent, and then from clinics, and the savings or long term benefits, long term lasting effective neurofeedback is also um, about ninety percent. It looks like so there appears to be a long term benefit uh, for core things like sleep and attention and stress um, and seizure. Uh, And then other things that are more profound brain issues like schizophrenia and um, autism and things like that seem to require more ongoing and more sort of broad and um, even maybe slow-moving effects from the training Mm -hmm. because there's just so much more going on. It's just to work work around or work through or encourage to shift. Uh, But for what I would say simple things like ADHD, I think ADHD is the, you know, again, low-hanging fruit of neurofeedback. Right. I don't think there's any need ever for psychostimulants because if nine out of ten people can have their ADHD dramatically attenuated by neurofeedback and have it and have it done in a in a semi permanent way, and have it done without any real significant side effects and along the way improve their sleep and other, you know, brain stability and, and some other subtle regulation things as well, mm-hmm. then why are we giving anybody, you know, amphetamines of any sort? Because right. doesn't really seem to be a need for it uh, in the literature at this point. The nerve feedback has profoundly good efficacy for ADHD and also for for peak performance. I mean Hmm. you may have heard in other you know venues that I don't really believe in ADHD as a uh, as it's diagnosed I think it's over diagnosed I think that the vast majority of people that have a diagnosis have attention that doesn't fit into cubicle heads down work but you know might be beneficial hunting in a jungle. Right. Uh, and so I think that only the very very extreme cases should be considered ADHD, uh, and even those respond to neurofeedback. Um, and for those of us that are wondering, you know, about other neurofeedback benefits, even without ADHD, you can have improved attention, improved, uh, you know, sustained attention, response inhibition, uh, selective attention, uh, better focus. These things can be achieved, uh, you know, in any brain because that's what brains do: brains shift. They mm-hmm. respond to challenges, they respond to, to demands. Uh, and so my whole approach, you know, throughout, before grad school, realizing how broadly uh, changeable brains were, as well as how broadly damageable or, you know, dysregulable brains uh, apparently were, through both developmental and acquired ways, mm-hmm. um, kind, of, kind of put me on this path, this mission of encouraging people to take control and to, and to find a way. Right. To um, encourage and shape and, and guide and steer the shift that you need to get in your brain performance. Be that fix ADHD. Be that fix a sleep problem. Be that you know squeeze an extra five percent of focus out of an already amazing day. Uh, I don't think we we have to perceive the brain as this black box that we don't have control over. I think we should perceive it more like mm-hmm. you know hacking our body with a with a primal paleo or ketogenic diet. You can hack the brain with other things too. That actually is a great way to hack the brain as well with that kind of diet. But right. you know, meditation and neurofeedback and nootropics and all kinds of other things are out there that appear to help us mm-hmm. up our game as well as fix our problems. So um, you know, I the biggest advice I have for people is to don't tolerate not being comfortable, not being performant the way you want because mm-hmm. you can change.
0: Right. So on, on that note about uh, you know for example with ADHD uh perhaps going the neurofeedback route as treatment you know to, to be to be better off than medications like so with true brain you're offering uh nootropics which are you know chemicals that enhance brain function can enhance concentration or memory wouldn't you I, so are those Put in a different list than pharmaceuticals or than other. Uh... Some of them
1: are, yeah. I mean, I mean, the, broadly speaking, the category of nootropic is something that improves cognition, as you as you said, mm-hmm. and does so without any appreciable side effects. And that means nootropics, uh, strictly speaking, should not be habit-forming, tolerance-producing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, no real side effects. So caffeine is not really nootropic because it's obviously habit-forming and uh, has cardiovascular bladder side effects etc but there's lots of things that don't have side effects and some of them are pharmaceuticals or off-label drugs or orphan drugs Um, some are amino acids some are herbs some are natural compounds some are synthetic Um, and uh, there's you know sort of an ever-proliferating wild west of nootropic compounds out there and unfortunately the word nootropic has become more of a buzzword, and so there's lots of things called nootropics that actually do have significant side effects, um, just because it's a, it's a marketing sort of ploy at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of nootropic vendors are fairly, you know, small, shady, fly-by-night places or, you know, random international websites. Uh, and that was sort of uh, one of the motivations to helping, uh, you know, joining with Chris Thompson initially and then, of course, our other team of business and neuroscience people. To build TrueBrain was because, as a, a grad student in in cognitive neuroscience program, I was having a difficult time figuring out, you know, what nootropics might be interesting or beneficial or safe to experiment with. Mm. And did that you took me did some you self experiment? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you have to, in, 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 or at least you had to, ten years ago mm. in nootropics, uh, and certainly even a few years ago. Um, just, it, there aren't a lot of well-vetted products out there. There's a lot of bulk powders and shady, you know, shipping containers.
0: Yeah, so uh, uh-huh. you, m- mm-hmm. what, was there any, uh, you know, during the self-experimentation, like you're saying, there's a lot of shady products out there. Did anything go wrong?
1: The only thing that went wrong for me was in a, in a prescription drug, actually. You know, I got some several uh, random powders sent over the Internet, but the only thing that was caused a problem was a drug I was actually prescribed, and that was modafinil, which mm-hmm. people often tout as a nootropic, and it's absolutely not because it has, you know, far, fairly rare but life-threatening side effects when they show up. And um, this was just before I, I got into the sort of, uh, into TrueBrain, uh, a few months before, um, I took modafinil, you know, as prescribed, one tablet every morning, 100 milligrams, for two weeks. And at the end of that time, I developed something card, called uh, erythema multiform minor, which was basically head-to-toe, body-covering pressure hives. Really? Um, wow. And lungs closing up. And wow. it lasted for about three weeks, during, and that was during heavy corticosteroids and everything else. And here I am, you know, a couple years later, and I still have a sort of screwed up histamine system from that experience. Um, So, Mm -hmm. yes, I, I, you know, believed the articles about modafinil being amazing. Um, uh, A doctor was happy to prescribe it for me off-label for attention stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was one of the few people that developed a very dramatic side effect. And then if Mm -hmm. you, you know, dig into the literature a bit more, and I did, obviously, after that, um... There's a paper with the title, um, Approved and Investigational Uses of Modafinil. And to read through that paper, it's a, a meta study, a, a, you know, a, a review of, of, of many papers. Right. It looks like um, any time it's used with ADHD uh, in studies, the rate of side effects goes up dramatically. Hmm. So there's something about um, histamine, I believe. This is a guess, hand-waving. But histamine is a neurotransmitter as well as an immune <clears throat> sort of allergic uh, you know, uh, modifier. Um, and in the brain, histamine is an earlier, if you will, uh, neurotransmitter than all the classic neurotransmitters. So it tends to upregulate all of the other ones, you know, dopamine and norepinephrine well. and everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, respond to histamine, and that's probably what midazolam is doing. Um, it's affecting orexin in the hypothalamus for the sleep-wake cycle, but it's also doing something about histamine, the H2 or H3 receptor, I forget which. But because of that. Um, and, of course, uh, in attention problems, you know, it may be coincidental, but there is this trope, this sort of character of the, you know, ADHD geek who's got allergies and asthma and a, sort of a, a hypersensitive system. And I'm guessing that that's what's going on there. I haven't seen any real good research validating it, but modafinil mm-hmm. um, is used off-label for ADHD, and I think that's probably a fairly dramatic mistake, often, uh, and, you know, the side effects profiles uh, probably are showing up more often than, than we than we know. So, yeah, I had a I had a, a dramatic negative experience. Sounds, and yeah, it's not ordering weird. from a shady pharmacy. It was from getting a, a drug prescribed by right. my doctor. Hmm. Um, but I also avoided all the crazy research chemicals with strings of letters and numbers making up their names. Right. I mean, half the things out there are in that category, some random, you know, High school or college student with a with a biochemistry smidgen of knowledge found a paper with a chemical formula and asked them to be uh, synthesized in China. Mm. You know, there's sort of these pirate uh, nootropics out there where the researcher who discovered them says, "Oh yeah, not ready for human consumption," and the next month somebody's had a thousand kilos manufactured in China and it's on six websites. So there's an awful lot of that, and I knew enough from both my own you know common sense as well as some psychopharmacology to avoid some of these compounds. Um, when I was first experimenting with nootropics and then getting involved with true brain, we don't use anything like that. We use things that are good you know, to been know. around for decades and have <laughs> yeah. uh, you know really well understood safety and efficacy profiles. things that are re- really safe. you know the only drug in true brain, uh, like really, paracetam, uh, has an LD50, a toxicity level that's significantly higher than salt. So I mean, you can't you can't really uh, take too much of the things in TrueBrain and cause damage to yourself. And so, for especially for a consumer product, that was my goal. But you know, very much from a personal point of view, I did not want to play around with risky nootropics, uh, especially when I when I, I discovered there was you know achievable and attainable gains at uh, you know uh, uh, from a, a stack a blend of compounds that was safe and effective and relatively inexpensive. So. I didn't have to go for the crazy, you know, uh, XYZ, PQ234 labeled nootropic just to try to find a little tiny edge of performance. Mm. Um, I mean, I I could find things that had no side effects and, you know, play around, self-experiment until I found the ones that I thought worked best and worked best in combination. And that's what eventually became uh, True Brain 1.0. When I met Chris Thompson, mm-hmm. and from there we iterated and developed a drink product, and other you know blends, and uh, have been fine-tuning the uh, the 1.0 to make it work better. And so, uh, you know, now now there is a, a curated a, a consumer product that is not sketchy and you know well tested. Every batch is right. tested and uh, has good packaging and doesn't doesn't look quite so sketchy when you you know. <laughs> in the workplace open up your you know your, your tropics now it's a little drink pouch or yeah. a little capsule pouch instead of like a five kilo bag of white powder which no one really is going to ever understand uh is my guess so
0: yeah. so i had a uh, specific question about true Brain. i saw on the website that it it mentions that true Brain has the world's first liquid nootropic
1: yeah the drink so, uh, yeah. called a think drink and it's a one ounce little uh paper, uh, paper, sort of sealed cardboard pouch, uh, and you rip the top off and you can either toss it straight back or uh, mix it in uh, mm-hmm. to a, a smoothie or, you know, mix it with sparkling water or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually tastes good. The first iteration, last uh, October, about a year ago, um, the, the taste was uh, almost or about as good as an energy drink, which was our first bar, but now it's actually yummy. Uh, it actually <laughs> tastes very good. We managed to mask Uh fairly hideous flavors of all the nootropics in there and still get, you know, really good absorption. Um, And so it's also a little bit less expensive and it seems to work a little bit better because of that. You don't have to take quite as much. Um, And
0: it also seems it sounds a lot easier than taking a bunch of pills every day, uh, I'm sure sure that was part part of of the the idea behind behind
1: it. Chris' real uh, uh, motivation, A, people were asking for it. You know, a year Mm. ago we had something like 1,000 members. And they were like, okay, we want a drink. We want an energy drink, a think drink, something. And so we produced something. And we iterated it. And now, I mean, it's it's much easier if you're a nootropic user to give your dad or your friends a drink pouch than it is to get them pills. Exactly. It's just a different level of stigma, a different level of, you know, acceptability. And um, people understand taking a drink or, you know, a little, like, uh, it's the sort of one-ounce drinks akin to a five-hour energy in sort of delivery mechanism mm-hmm. and that's become so ubiquitous in our culture that people understand that concept even though the true brain drinks are not sort of a you know caffeine sugar bomb the way uh five-hour energy is it's it's largely this a similar formulation as the capsules mm-hmm. you know it has a racetam a choline theanine magnesium carnitine tyrosine it's mm-hmm. you know it's the same sort of uh, main um, star players but now it's in a fairly yummy-tasting one-ounce drink. So um, that was mostly to try to bring the uh, uh, accessibility piece down uh, for our customers and for new customers who might not be as comfortable you know, swallowing handfuls of, uh, of pills.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I, one of the drawbacks or one of the reservations that I've kind of had about uh, nootropics or, or anything that you might want to take regularly or semi-regularly that have to do with the brain, So if you were to take uh, uh, any any nootropic, let's say you take it every day regularly, so if you are introducing this chemical into your brain that is naturally produced already, right? But you're just introducing this extra dose to help you focus and concentrate, would your brain not adapt and in and Down-regulate? Down-regulate, yeah. yeah. Um,
1: It it would if we were actually giving you like neurotransmitters. I'll give you the example, L-tyrosine is a precursor to dopamine. So in case your dopamine system is rate-limited by nutrition or by abusing it with stimulants, we've added L-tyrosine so that your brain can make more dopamine. But having more tyrosine doesn't make the brain make less dopamine, it doesn't overfill the hopper, it just fills it so there's more raw mm-hmm. material. Um, also, paracetam, which is one of the main ingredients, or oxyracetam in the drink, is not naturally occurring, but it's mm-hmm. similar. To a brain compound and it's a valid question you know tolerance essentially um, and down regulation of of endogenous things Um, it doesn't appear to work that way and we don't know why but the racetam class of compounds for the most part looks like it has a reverse tolerance meaning that it seems to work better the longer you take it and if it was adjusting and adapting to it it should have a tolerance it should actually work less well and you should either notice it less or you should become dependent on it, so that when you withdraw it, you know you notice that there was some dependence. Neither of those things happen with the racetam class of substances. Um, they seem to work. Safe materials uh, in true brain. Besides uh, the racetams, have more of a nutritive focus. So carnitine is used in every cell. So adding carnitine is not going to downregulate energy use in the cell. It's going to allow cells to sidestep rate-limiting, you know, uh, uh, reactions where carnitine is the issue. Um, magnesium, you know, uh, is used both as a raw material for helping nerve cells fire. It's also used to buffer overactivation cognitively and sort of musculoskeletally. Mm-hmm. So, it, adding more magnesium isn't going to make you necessarily uh, more focused or more relaxed, but it will hold you in the in between the two. So, mm-hmm. we very carefully of these seven ingredients that are the the core of True Brain uh, in either format. We very carefully sort of pick things that would not downregulate endogenous production. And mm-hmm. this is definitely not like taking growth hormone and, and shutting down your endogenous production. There's, there's, uh, um, we're, we're feeding into natural uh, activity and metabolic chains for the most part, as opposed to giving you end product of those chains.
0: Got it. So you, I mean, you mentioned that you very, you know, Fascinating path to, to, to where you are today and you're talking about all of these you say you're involved in multiple startups
1: Yeah, and well true brain it, uh, is mm, one right. and then alternatives um, addiction is another Oh, okay.
0: Um, so that's a startup as well. Okay.
1: Yeah, it's, it's alternatives behavioral health or alternatives addiction mm-hmm. uh, And I've been running a brain program there called Alternatives Brain Institute that is spinning off into its own company called the LA Peak Brain Center so mm-hmm. Peak brain LA um, and that's a general brain center. And uh, you know, over a decade ago, I was involved in, in high tech startups uh, in Boston, uh, Boston area. So um, oh, what's an I went example through a round of, of a... high tech startups, and yeah. then uh, came out to LA, grad school, stayed here, and have been doing sort of health and human service, you know, uh, peak performance startups out here.
0: What's an example of a high tech startup?
1: So um, I worked for a company initially. My first little tiny startup was. Um, I was like employee number four or nine or something in that company. Uh, it was a, a Salesforce automation or customer relationship management product mm-hmm. in the, uh, at the time, deregulating energy industry. Wow. So it helped energy companies learn to become sales organizations and run business the way that most companies did. Because mm-hmm. they didn't know how to at the time and they were competing with each other and that was weird and they didn't know how to do that. Um, and then I went from there to a company called uh, OpenLink Software. Uh, and OpenLink uh, is still going strong, you know, many years later, um, started by a gentleman named Kingsley Atahan. Um <clears throat> OpenLink makes uh, a database, uh, a virtual database product that, that allows you to link multiple databases together and query them as if it's one database. And they also make database drivers to allow you to link uh, multiple client-server systems to different legacy backend databases. So take your big organization and tie all of your different Silos of enterprise systems together, uh, and and bring the knowledge up to the level of the sort of decision maker um, by making the HR and the AR and the you know process and manufacturing databases all uh, tied together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did this sort of business process data high tech stuff for a few years, and then I you know that kind of, uh, I, got, I, I got squeezed out a little bit um, as the tech bubble contracted. Mm. And uh, that was sort of my nudge to get back into health and human services. And yeah. that's when I went to work for a place called the Neurodevelopment Center in Providence, right. uh, Rhode Island, where mm. I did autism work uh, under a guy named Larry Hirschberg. Um, and so uh, I wasn't sure what I was doing at that point, but I ended up out in L.A. a few years later uh, in a grad program. So mm. it seems to have all worked out. Pretty well even if it's been a little bit uh, circuitous
0: yeah you seem to have a very very varied and interesting background for yeah jack-of-all-trades master of yeah
1: <laughs> you know, maybe one or two I don't know a yeah.
0: bit of a Renaissance man I don't know uh, yeah right exactly
1: that's that's a good way to put it sure
0: so not- I, you know as far as true brain goes the true brain is is your you know um, I guess uh, health or you know performance optimization startup for any that that's kind of based on your your research for any uh, students, you know, grad students or, or undergraduate students or postdocs out there who are interested in, you know, maybe following in your footsteps and taking their research from the bench to a startup, like, would you have any pieces of advice for those people?
1: Uh, yeah, do it. Um, <laughs> you know, like, like uh, don't let the perfect be the enemy, the enemy of good here. Uh, take, the lean, take lessons from the lean startup model. When uh, thinking about how to go from academia into business, lean startups are about developing your minimal viable product and iterating, releasing often. Uh, when you're trying to be to move from academia, academia is about the opposite of being a lean startup. It's about delaying gratification for months or years. It's about doing everything perfectly. It's mm-hmm. about planning very carefully. Half the work in research is done before you start your research project. you know because you have to do everything right, otherwise, later on, you've, you know, uh, impaired your ability to find answers. So research is is very plotting, very methodical, very careful, very looking forward. And Lean Startup is about what's the minimal bit of engineering I can put into place, and then iterate, 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 iterate. And if you're an academic, uh, undergrad, grad student, thinking about doing this stuff, um, and you have some unique intellectual property, or you have some idea about how you can improve something that's out there and do it better, um, do it. Don't wait. Mm-hmm. And don't wait until it's big, until it's complete, until it's a whole suite of products. You know, um, grab a copy of the Business Model Canvas book by, I forget who, it's, who the author is, but it's published by Wiley, and figure out your minimal viable product. Get it out there and start iterating because there's really nothing standing in your way um, except your ability to uh, succeed uh, and to have a good idea. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I would say um, beyond the initial urge to push you into that space is success in entrepreneurial spaces is not a straight line. It Mm -hmm. doesn't go from idea to success. It goes from idea to attempt to attempt to trial to trial to to failure to failure to failure to success. So you have to sort of bounce off all of your challenges, all of your failures, all of your thwarted uh, ideas and Mm -hmm. use that sort of as momentum to slingshot you towards the next um, possible success and possible way that it will work. Uh, and so, um, challenges and, and, and setbacks, uh, should be considered valuable information about course correction, uh, and, and, and ways to improve your process, and not uh, a referendum on if your idea is good or not. Because the idea is the passion that, that brings you to the space Mm -hmm. is probably never going to be the problem. What will be the problem is your execution and your ability to keep executing in spite of failures. So, um. You know, yeah. momentum uh, uh, from your failures, intention uh, to try to see yourself to the next success from there. You know, that, that's that's I think an important piece of the of the being in the lean startup, the earliest. Because this this is no longer a time. You know, we're, here we are in two thousand and fifteen. Um, if it was ten or fifteen years ago, a really good idea and a couple of team members might get you money from a VC company. But there, the, there are no longer VC money uh, funds available for startups. VCs only want to invest in existing companies these days uh, for various reasons. But it has a lot to do with the fact that all VCs take what's called a carrying uh, fee now, which means they pay themselves to administer the money they're giving you, and they have to pay themselves a million bucks, <laughs> and so they they can't give you anything yeah. less than twenty million, mm. and therefore. They can't invest in a company that's not worth $20 million, and no startup is worth $20 million. Right. So they only want to buy existing companies and roll them up into larger organizations. Yeah. So forget VCs. Just forget VCs. They're not worth it for startups, incubators, or angels, or just bootstrapping it yourself if you have you know, some skills and some ability is the way to go. Mm. Um, but there's tons of opportunity. Information's accessible. You can code apps. You can do things with very little tech skill these days that I wish I could have done 20 years ago. Um, so uh, if you have ideas, that's wonderful. You know breathe some life into them and start executing and seeing you know drag them out into the world and see what shape they are and see how you can improve them. Uh, well, nothing else will you know unless you do it, nothing else will make it happen.
0: That is a fantastic piece of advice and I think we'll wrap it up here. Okay, Thank you Dr. Hill so much for being on the show. It's been a fascinating
1: conversation. Thank you. My pleasure.
0: Thanks for having me, Sam. Termination of Current Scientist The Human Episode Stay
1: breezy